0: Clinton's laws of politics is this, if one candidate's trying to scare you and the other one's trying to get you to think, if one candidate's appealing to your fears and the other one's appealing to your hopes, you better vote for the person who wants you to think and hope. Ladies and gentlemen, there are times in the history of our nation when our very way of life depends upon dispelling illusions and awakening to the challenge of a present danger. In such moments, we are called upon to move quickly and boldly and shake off complacency, throw aside old habits, and rise clear-eyed and alert to the necessity of making big changes. Those who, for whatever reason, refuse to do their part in such times must either be persuaded to join the effort or asked to step aside. This is such a moment. The survival of the United States of America as we know it is at risk, and even more, if more should be required, the future of human civilization is at stake. I do not remember a time in our country when so many things seemed to be going so wrong simultaneously. Our economy is in terrible shape and getting worse. People are hurting. Gasoline prices are increasing dramatically, and so are electricity rates. Jobs are being outsourced. Home mortgages are in trouble. Banks, automobile companies, other institutions we depend upon are under growing pressure. Distinguished senior business leaders are telling us that this is just the beginning unless we find the courage to make some major changes quickly. The climate crisis in particular is getting a lot worse, much more quickly than predicted. Scientists with access to data from Navy submarines traversing underneath the North Polar ice cap have now warned us that there is a 75% chance that within only five years, the entire North Polar ice cap will completely disappear during the summer months. This will further increase the melting pressure on Greenland. According to experts, one of the largest glaciers there, the Jacob Chauvin Glacier, is moving at a faster rate than ever before, losing 20 million tons of ice every day. That's equivalent to the amount of water used in a year's time by the residents of our largest city, New York City. Two major studies from military intelligence experts have warned our leaders about the dangerous national security implications of the climate crisis, including the possibility of hundreds of millions of climate refugees destabilizing nations around the world. Just two days ago, 27 senior statesmen and retired military leaders warned of the national security threat from what they called an energy tsunami that would be triggered by a loss of our access to foreign oil. Meanwhile, the war in Iraq continues, and now the war in Afghanistan appears to be getting worse. And by the way, our weather sure is getting strange, isn't it? There seem to be more tornadoes than in living memory, longer droughts, bigger downpours, and record floods. Today unprecedented fires are burning in California and elsewhere in the American West. Higher temperatures lead to drier vegetation that makes kindling for megafires of the kind that have been raging in Canada, Greece, Russia, China, South America, Australia, and Africa. Scientists in the Department of Geophysics and Planetary Science at Tel Aviv University tell us that for every one degree increase in temperature, lightning strikes will go up another 10%. And it is lightning, after all, that is principally responsible for igniting the conflagration in California today. Like a lot of people, it seems to me that all these problems are bigger than any of the solutions that have thus far been proposed for them. And that's been worrying me. I'm convinced that one reason we have seemed to be paralyzed in the face of these crises is the tendency to offer old solutions to each crisis separately without taking the others into account. And these outdated proposals have not only been ineffective, they almost always make the other crises worse. Yet when we look at all three of these seemingly intractable challenges at the same time, we can see the common thread running through them, deeply ironic in its simplicity. Our dangerous over reliance on carbon based fuels is at the core of all three of these challenges the economic, environmental, and national security crises. We're borrowing money from China to buy oil from the Persian Gulf to burn it in ways that destroy the planet. Every bit of that has to change.
1: bottom of my everything that freaks me out the lighthouse beam has just run out i'm cold as cold as cold can be, be. <sighs>
2: Berlin, as so many of my countrymen have come before. Although tonight I speak to you not as a candidate for president, but as a citizen. A proud citizen of the United States and a fellow citizen of the world. I know that I don't look like the Americans who have previously spoken in this great city. The journey that led me here is improbable. My mother was born in the heartland of America, but my father grew up herding goats in Kenya. His father was a cook, a domestic servant to the British. British! At the height of the Cold War, my father decided, like so many others in the forgotten corners of the world, that his yearning, his dream, required the freedom and opportunity promised by the West. And so he wrote letter after letter to universities all across America until somebody, somewhere answered his prayer for a better life. That is why I am here. And you are here because you, too, know that yearning. This city, of all cities, knows the dream of freedom. And you know that the only reason we stand here tonight is because men and women from both of our nations came together to work and struggle and sacrifice for that better life. Ours is a partnership that truly began 60 years ago this summer on the day when the first American plane touched down at Templehof. On that day, On that day, much of this continent still lay in ruin. The rubble of this city had yet to be built into a wall. The Soviet shadow had swept across Eastern Europe, while in the West, America, Britain, and France took their stock of their losses and pondered how the world might be remade. This is where the two sides met. And on the 24th of June, 1948, The communists chose to blockade the western part of the city. They cut off food and supplies to more than two million Germans in an effort to extinguish the last flame of freedom in Berlin. The size of our forces was no match for the larger Soviet army. And yet retreat would have allowed communism to march across Europe, where the last war had ended another world war could have easily begun. And all that stood in the way was Berlin. And that's when, that's when the airlift began, when the largest and most unlikely rescue in the history brought food and hope to the people of the city. The odds were stacked against success. In the winter, A heavy fog filled the sky above, and many planes were forced to turn back without dropping off the needed supplies. The streets where we stand were filled with hungry families who had no comfort from the cold. But in the darkest hours, the people of Berlin kept the flame of hope burning. The people of Berlin refused to give up. And on one fall day, hundreds of thousands of Berliners came here to the Tiergarten and heard the city's mayor implore the world not to give up on freedom. There is only one possibility, he said, for us to stand together, united, until this battle is won. The people of Berlin have spoken. We have done our duty, he said, and we will keep on doing our duty. People of the world, now do your duty. People of the world, look at Berlin. People of the world, look at Berlin. Look at Berlin, where Germans and Americans learned to work together and trust each other less than three years after facing each other on the field of battle. Look at Berlin, where the determination of a people met the generosity of the Marshall Plan and created a German miracle, where a, t- where a victory over tyranny gave rise to NATO, the greatest alliance ever formed to defend our common security. Look at Berlin, where the bullet holes in the buildings and the somber stones and pillars near the Brandenburg Gate insist that we never forget our common humanity. People of the world, look at Berlin, where a wall came down, a continent came together, and history proved that there is no challenge too great for a world that stands as one.
0: hold of that common thread and pull it hard, all of these complex problems begin to unravel. And we find that we're holding the answer to all of them right in our hand. The answer is to end our reliance on carbon-based fuels. In my search for genuinely effective answers to the climate crisis, I've held a long series of so-called solution summits with engineers, scientists, and CEOs, and in those discussions one thing has become abundantly clear. When you connect the dots, it turns out that the real solutions to the climate crisis are the very same measures that are needed to renew our economy and escape the trap of ever-rising energy prices. Moreover, they are also the very same solutions that we need to guarantee our national security without having to go to war in the Persian Gulf. What if we could use fuels that aren't expensive, don't cause pollution, and are abundantly available right here at home? We have such fuels. Scientists have confirmed that enough solar energy falls on the surface of the Earth every 40 minutes to meet 100% of the entire world's energy needs for a full year. Tapping just a small portion of this solar energy could provide all of the electricity America uses. And enough wind power blows through the Midwest corridor every day to also meet 100% of U.S. electricity demand. Geothermal energy, similarly, is capable of providing enormous supplies of electricity for America. The quickest, cheapest, most efficient, and best way to start using all of this renewable energy is in the production of electricity. In fact, we can start right now using solar power, wind power, and geothermal power to make electricity for our homes and businesses. But to make this exciting potential a reality and truly solve our nation's problems, we need a new start. That is why I am proposing today a strategic initiative designed to free us from the crises that are holding us down and to regain control of our own destiny. It's not the only thing we need to do, but this strategic challenge is the linchpin of a bold new strategy needed to repower America. So today, I challenge our nation to commit to producing 100% of our electricity from renewable energy and truly clean carbon-free sources within 10 years.
2: History has led us to a new crossroad, with new promise and new peril. When you, the German people, tore down that wall, a wall that divided East and West, freedom and tyranny, fear and hope, walls came tumbling down around the world. From Kiev to Cape Town, prison camps were closed, and the doors of democracy were opened. Markets opened too, and the spread of information and technology reduced barriers to opportunity and prosperity. While the 20th century taught us that we share a common destiny, the 21st century has revealed a world more intertwined than at any time in human history. The fall of the Berlin Wall brought new hope, but that very closeness has given rise to new dangers. Dangers that cannot be contained within the borders of a country or by the distance of an ocean. Think about it. The terrorists of September 11th plotted in Hamburg and trained in Kandahar and Karachi before killing thousands from all over the globe on American soil. As we speak, cars in Boston and factories in Beijing are melting the ice caps in the Arctic, shrinking coastlines in the Atlantic and bringing drought to farms from Kansas to Kenya. Poorly secured nuclear material in the former Soviet Union or secrets from a scientist in Pakistan could help build a bomb that detonates in Paris. The poppies in Afghanistan come to Berlin in the form of heroin. The poverty and violence in Somalia breeds the terror of tomorrow. The genocide in Darfur shames the conscience of us all. In this new world, such dangerous currents have swept along faster than our efforts to contain them. And that is why we cannot afford to be divided. No one nation, no matter how large or powerful, can defeat such challenges alone. None of us can deny these threats or escape responsibility in meeting them. Yet in the absence of Soviet tanks and a terrible wall, it has become easy to forget this truth. And if we're honest with each other, we know that sometimes on both sides of the Atlantic, we have drifted apart and forgotten our shared destiny. In Europe, the view that America is part of what has gone wrong in our world, rather than a force to help us make it right, has become all too common. In America, there are voices that deride and deny the importance of Europe's role in our security and our future. Both views miss the truth that Europeans today are bearing new burdens and taking more responsibility in critical parts of the world, and that just as American bases built in the last century still help to defend the security of this continent, so does our country still sacrifice greatly for freedom around the globe. Yes, there have been differences between America and Europe. No doubt there will be differences in the future. But the burdens of global citizenship continue to bind us together. A change of leadership in Washington will not lift this burden. In this new century, Americans and Europeans alike will be required to do more, not less. Partnership and cooperation among nations is not a choice. It is the only way, the one way, to protect our common security and advance our common humanity. That is why the greatest danger of all is to allow new walls to divide us from one another. The walls between old allies on either side of the Atlantic cannot stand. The walls between the countries with the most and those with the least cannot stand. The walls between races and tribes, natives and immigrants, Christians and Muslims and Jews cannot stand. These now are the walls we must tear down.
0: achievable, affordable, and transformative. It represents a challenge to all Americans in every walk of life – to our political leaders, entrepreneurs, innovators, engineers, and to every citizen. A few short years ago, it would not have been possible to issue such a challenge. But here's what's changed. The sharp cost reductions now beginning to take place in solar, wind, and geothermal power coupled with the recent dramatic price increases for oil and coal, have radically changed the economics of energy. When I first went to the Congress 32 years ago, I listened to experts testify that if oil ever got to $35 a barrel, then renewable sources of energy would become competitive. Well, today the price of oil is over $135 a barrel. And sure enough, billions of dollars of new investment are flowing into the development of concentrated solar thermal, photovoltaics, windmills, geothermal plants, and a variety of ingenious new ways to improve our efficiency and conserve presently wasted energy. And as the demand for renewable energy grows, the costs will continue to fall. Let me give you one revealing example. The price of the specialized silicon used to make solar cells was recently as high as $300 per kilogram, but the newest contracts have prices as low as $50 a kilogram. You remember the same thing happened with computer chips, also made out of silicon. The price paid for the same performance came down by 50% every 18 months, year after year. And that's been happening for 40 years in a row. To those who argue that we do not yet have the technology to accomplish these kinds of results with renewable energy, I ask them to come with me to meet the entrepreneurs who will drive this revolution. I've seen what they're doing, and I have no doubt that we can meet this challenge. To those who say the costs are still too high, I ask them to consider whether the cost of oil and coal will ever stop increasing if we keep relying on quickly depleting energy sources to feed a rapidly growing demand all around the world. When demand for oil and coal increases, their price goes up. When demand for solar cells increases, the price often comes down. That's the difference. One source of fuel is expensive and going up, and the other source of fuel is free forever. When we send money to foreign countries to buy nearly 70% of the oil we use every day, they build new skyscrapers and we lose jobs. When we spend that money building solar arrays and windmills here, we build competitive industries and gain jobs here at home. Of course, there are those who will tell us that this can't be done. Some of the voices we hear are from the defenders of the status quo, the ones with a vested interest in perpetuating the current system, no matter how high a price the rest of us will have to pay. But even those who reap the profits of the carbon age have to recognize the inevitability of its demise. As one OPEC oil minister observed, the Stone Age didn't end because of a shortage of stones. To those who say 10 years is not enough time, I respectfully ask them to consider seriously what the world scientists are telling us about the risks we face if we don't act in less than 10 years. Those leading experts predict that we have less than 10 years to make dramatic changes in our global warming pollution, lest we lose our ability to ever recover from this environmental crisis. When the use of oil and coal goes up, pollution goes up, as it's doing right now. But when the use of solar, wind, and geothermal increases, pollution comes down. To those who say the challenge is not politically viable, I suggest they go before the American people and try to defend the status quo, and then bear witness to the people's appetite for dramatic change. The time is now.
1: Did you ever think there might be another way to just feel
2: better, just feel better about today? Oh no, if you never want to have to turn and go away, you might
1: feel better, might feel better if you stay. Yeah, yeah, I bet you haven't heard a word I've said.
2: You're trying, just give up the state of mind you're in. If you wanna be somebody else,
1: if you're tired of fighting battles with
2: yourself, if you wanna be somebody else, we know we know that these walls have fallen before. After centuries of strife, the people of Europe have formed a union of promise and prosperity. Here, at the base of a column built to mark victory in war, we meet in the center of a Europe at peace. Not only have walls come down in Berlin, but they've come down in Belfast, where Protestant and Catholic found a way to live together. In the Balkans, where our Atlantic Alliance ended wars and brought savage war criminals to justice, and in South Africa, where the struggle of a courageous people defeated apartheid. So history reminds us that walls can be torn down, but the task is never easy. True partnership and true progress requires constant work and sustained sacrifice. They require sharing the burdens of development and diplomacy, of peace and progress. They require allies who will listen to each other, learn from each other, and most of all, trust each other. That is why America cannot turn inward. That is why Europe cannot turn inward. America has no better partner than Europe. Now now is the time to build new bridges across the globe, as strong as the one that binds us across the Atlantic. Now is the time to join together through constant cooperation and strong institutions and shared sacrifice and a global commitment to progress to meet the challenges of the 21st century. It was this spirit that led airlift planes to appear in the sky above our heads and people to assemble where we stand today. And this is the moment when our nations and all nations must summon that spirit anew. This is the moment when we must defeat terror and dry up the well of extremism that supports it. This threat is real, and we cannot shrink from our responsibility to combat it. If we could create NATO to face down the Soviet Union, we can join in a new and global partnership to dismantle the networks that have struck in Madrid and Amman, in London and Bali, in Washington and New York. If we could win a battle of ideas against the Communists, we can stand with the vast majority of Muslims who reject the extremism that leads to hate instead of hope. This is the moment when we must renew our resolve to rout the terrorists who threaten our security in Afghanistan and the traffickers who sell drugs on your streets. No one welcomes war. I recognize the enormous difficulties in Afghanistan, but my country and yours have a stake in seeing that NATO's first mission beyond Europe's borders is a success. For the people of Afghanistan and for our shared security, the work must be done. America can't do this alone. The Afghan people need our troops and your troops, our support and your support, to defeat the Taliban and al Qaeda, to develop their economy, and to help them rebuild their nation. We have too much at stake to turn back now. This is the moment when we must renew the goal of a world without nuclear weapons. The two superpowers that faced each other across the wall of this city came too close, too often to destroying all we have built and all that we love. With that wall gone, we need not stand idly by and watch the further spread of the deadly atom. It is time to secure all loose nuclear materials, to stop the spread of nuclear weapons, and to reduce the arsenals from another era. This is the moment to begin the work of seeking the peace of a world without nuclear weapons. This is the moment when every nation in Europe must have the chance to choose its own tomorrow, free from the shadows of yesterday. In this century, we need a strong European Union that deepens the security and prosperity of this continent while extending a hand abroad. In this century, in this city of all cities, we must reject the Cold War mindset of the past and resolve to work with Russia when we can, to stand up for our values when we must, and to seek a partnership that extends across this entire continent. This is the moment when we must build on the wealth that opens markets, have created, and share its benefits more equitably. Trade has been a cornerstone of our growth and global development. But we will not be able to sustain this growth if it favors the few and not the many. Together, together we must forge trade that truly rewards the work that creates wealth with meaningful protections for our people and our planet. This is the moment for trade that is free and fair for all. This is the moment we must help answer the call for a new dawn in the Middle East. My country must stand with yours and with Europe in sending a direct message to Iran that it must abandon its nuclear ambitions. We must support the Lebanese who've marched and bled for democracy, and the Israelis and the Palestinians who seek a secure and lasting peace. And despite despite past differences, this is the moment when the world should support the millions of Iraqis who seek to rebuild their lives, even as we pass responsibility to the Iraqi government and finally bring this war to a close. We must come together to save this planet. Let us resolve that we will not leave our children to a world where the oceans rise and famine spreads and terrible storms devastate our lands. Let us resolve that all nations, including my own, will act with the same seriousness of purpose as has your nation and reduce the carbon we send into our atmosphere.
0: Our country can withstand 10 more years of the status quo. Our families can't stand 10 more years of gasoline price increases. Our workers can't stand 10 more years of job losses and outsourcing of factories. Our economy can't stand 10 more years of sending $2 billion every 24 hours to foreign countries for oil. And our soldiers and their families cannot take another 10 years of repeated troop deployments to dangerous regions that just happened to have large oil supplies. What could, what could we do instead during these next 10 years? What should we do during the next 10 years? Some of our greatest accomplishments as a nation have resulted from commitments to reach a goal that fell well beyond the next election. The Marshall Plan, Social Security, the Interstate Highway System. A political promise to do something 40 years from now is universally ignored because everyone knows it's totally meaningless. Ten years is about the maximum time that we as a nation can hold a steady aim and hit our target. When President John F. Kennedy challenged our nation to land a man on the moon and bring him back safely in ten years, many people doubted we could accomplish that goal. But eight years and two months later, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walked on the surface of the moon and planted the American flag. To be sure, reaching the goal of 100 percent renewable and truly clean electricity within 10 years will require us to overcome many obstacles. At present, for example, we do not have a unified national grid that is sufficiently advanced to link the areas where the sun shines and the wind blows to the cities in the east and the west that need the electricity. Our national electric grid is critical infrastructure, as vital to the health and security of our economy as our highways and telecommunications networks. Today, our grids are antiquated, fragile, and vulnerable to cascading failure. Power outages and defects in the current grid system cost U.S. businesses more than $120 billion a year. It has to be upgraded anyway. We could further increase the value and efficiency of a unified national grid by helping our struggling auto companies switch to the manufacture of plug-in electric cars and save those auto jobs and renew our auto companies. An electric vehicle fleet would sharply reduce the cost of driving a car reduce pollution, and increase the flexibility of our electricity grid. At the same time, of course, we need to greatly improve our commitment to efficiency and conservation. That's the best investment we can make. We can make better use of our broadband networks to save energy. America's transition to renewable energy sources must also include adequate provisions to assist those Americans who would unfairly face hardship. For example, we must recognize those who have toiled in dangerous conditions to bring us our present energy supply. We should guarantee good jobs in the fresh air and sunshine for any coal miner displaced by impacts on the coal industry. Every single one of them. Now, of course, we could and should speed up this transition by insisting that the price of carbon-based energy include the costs of the environmental damage that it causes. I have long supported a sharp reduction in payroll taxes with the difference made up in CO2 taxes. We should tax what we burn, not what we earn. That's the single most important change that we can make. In order to foster international cooperation, it is also essential that the United States rejoin the global community and lead efforts to secure an international treaty at Copenhagen in December of next year that includes a cap on CO2 emissions and a global partnership that recognizes. The necessity of addressing the threats of extreme poverty and disease as part of the world's agenda for solving the climate crisis. Of course, the greatest obstacle to meeting the challenge of 100% renewable electricity in 10 years may be the deep dysfunction of our politics and our self governing system as it exists today. In recent years, Our politics has tended toward incremental proposals made up of small policies designed to avoid offending special interests alternating with occasional baby steps in the right direction. Our democracy has become sclerotic at a time when these crises require boldness. It is only a truly dysfunctional system that would buy into the perverse logic that the short-term answer to high gasoline prices is drilling for oil ten years from now in areas that should be protected.
2: our children back their future. This is the moment to stand as one. And this is the moment when we must give hope to those left behind in a globalized world. We must remember that the Cold War born in this city was not a battle for land or treasure. Sixty years ago, the planes that flew over Berlin did not drop bombs. Instead they delivered food and coal and candy to grateful children. And in that show of solidarity, those pilots won more than a military victory. They won hearts and minds, love and loyalty and trust, not just from the people in this city but from all those who heard the story of what they did here. Now the world will watch and remember what we do here, what we do with this moment. Will we extend our hand to the people in the forgotten quarters of this world who yearn for lives marked by dignity and opportunity, by security and justice? Will we lift the child in Bangladesh from poverty and shelter the refugee in Chad and banish the scourge of AIDS in our time? Will we stand for the human rights of the dissident in Burma, the blogger in Iran, or the voter in Zimbabwe? will we give meaning to the words never again in Darfur will we acknowledge will we acknowledge that there is no more powerful example than the one each of our nations projects to the world will we reject torture and stand for the rule of law will we. Will we we welcome immigrants from different lands and shun discrimination against those who don't look like us or worship like we do and keep the promise of equality and opportunity for all of our people? People of Berlin, people of the world, This is our moment. This is our time. I know my country has not perfected itself. At times, we've struggled to keep the promise of liberty and equality for all of our people. We've made our share of mistakes. And there are times when our actions around the world have not lived up to our best intentions. But I also know how much I love America. I know that for more than two centuries, we have strived at great cost and great sacrifice to form a more perfect union, to seek with other nations a more hopeful world. Our allegiance has never been to any particular tribe or kingdom. Indeed, every language is spoken in our country. Every culture has left its imprint on ours. Every point of view is expressed in our public squares. What has always united us, what has always driven our people, what drew my father to America's shores, is a set of ideals that speak to aspirations shared by all people. That we can live free from fear and free from want, that we can speak our minds and assemble with whomever we choose and worship as we please. These are the aspirations that join the fates of all nations in this city. These aspirations are bigger than anything that drives us apart. It is because of these aspirations that the airlift began. It is because of these aspirations that all free people, everywhere, became citizens of Berlin. It is in pursuit, it is in pursuit of these aspirations that a new generation, our generation, must make our mark on the world. People of Berlin and people of the world, the scale of our challenge is great. The road ahead will be long. But I come before you to say that we are heirs to a struggle for freedom. We are a people of improbable hope with an eye towards the future, with resolve in our heart. Let us remember this history and answer our destiny and remake the world once again. Thank you, Berlin. God bless you.
0: It's strange that our government so often adopts a so-called solution that has absolutely nothing to do with the problem it's supposed to address? When people rightly complain about higher gasoline prices that are hurting our country, we propose to give more money to the oil companies and pretend that they're going to bring gasoline prices down, it will do nothing of the sort and everyone knows it. If we keep going back to the same policies that have never, ever worked in the past and have served only to produce the highest gasoline prices in history, alongside the greatest oil company profits in history, nobody should be surprised if we get the same result over and over again. The Congress may be poised to move in that direction anyway because some of them are being stampeded by lobbyists for special interests that know how to make the system work for them instead of the American people. If you want to know the truth about gasoline prices, here it is. The exploding demand for oil, especially in places like China, is completely overwhelming the rate of new discoveries by so much that oil prices are almost certain to continue upward over time, no matter what the oil companies promise. And politicians cannot bring gasoline prices down in the short term by giving more money to the oil companies. there is one extremely effective way to bring the costs of driving a car way down within a few short years. The way to bring gasoline prices down is to end our dependence on oil and use the renewable sources that can give us the equivalent of one dollar per gallon gasoline. And we need to get busy creating that system now. Many Americans have begun to wonder whether or not we've simply lost our appetite for bold policy solutions. And folks who claim to know how our system works these days have told us we might as well forget about our political system doing anything bold, especially if it is contrary to the wishes of special interests. And I've got to admit, that sure seems to be the way things have been going. But I have begun to hear different voices in this country from the people who are not only tired of baby steps and special interest politics, but are hungry for a new, different and bold approach to genuinely solve our problems. We're on the eve of a presidential election. We're in the midst of an international climate treaty process that will conclude its work before the end of the first year of the new president's term. It's a great era to say the United States must wait for others to join us in this matter. In fact, we must move first because that's the key to getting others to follow, and moving first is in our own national interest. So I ask you to join with me to call on every candidate at every level to accept this challenge for America to be running on 100 percent zero-carbon electricity in 10 years. It's time for us to move beyond empty rhetoric. We need to act now, and we need to act boldly. This, this is a generational moment. A moment when we decide our own path and our collective fate. I'm asking you, each of you, to join me and build this future. Please join the WE Campaign at WeCanSolveIt.org. We need you, and we need you now. We're committed to changing not just light bulbs, but laws. And laws will only change with leadership. On July 16, 1969, the United States of America was finally ready to meet President Kennedy's challenge of landing Americans on the moon. I will never forget standing beside my father a few miles from the launch site, waiting for the giant Saturn V rocket to lift Apollo 11 into the sky. I was a young man, 21 years old who had graduated from college a month before and was enlisting in the U.S. Army three weeks later. I will never forget the inspiration of those minutes. The power and vibration of that giant rocket's engine shook my entire body. As I watched the rocket rise, slowly at first and then with great speed, the sound was deafening. We craned our necks to follow its path until we were looking straight up into the air. And then four days later, along with hundreds of millions of others, I watched as Neil Armstrong took one small step to the surface of the moon and changed the history of the human race. We must now lift our nation to reach another goal that will change history. Our entire civilization depends upon us now embarking on a new journey of exploration and discovery. Our success depends on our willingness as a people to undertake this journey and to complete it within 10 years. Once again, we have an opportunity to take a giant leap for humankind. Thank you for coming.
3: As usual, God bless Al Gore. And at first, I saw the speech and I thought, "Oh my God, is he saying we're going to get off of oil in 10 years? Jesus, Lord, mercy, calm down, Al. I mean, I love you, but that's a bit ambitious, right?" Uh, and what he proposed is ambitious, but it, it's not that. It's to turn our electricity, our electricity in America, uh, to strictly powered by uh, non-carbon-based uh, uh, energy. So. Uh, half of the electricity in america right now is produced by coal right over half a little over half and he wants to get rid of that and replace it with solar wind and other natural forms of energy and he says uh he realistically believes that we can do it in the next ten years and if gore says it i believe it (laughs) <laughs> it's like what the right wingers would say, like "Ah, oh, yeah, with these libs, of course, doesn't it? they just believe it?" No, seriously, he's an expert on this. I mean, I don't know if you know that. Uh, the guy kind of won a Nobel Prize on it, and so if he thinks it's doable, I really believe that he's right. And uh, and and I'd like to talk to some experts, uh, and maybe we'll get them on the show at some point to see how it can be done. Uh, now, at one point in the speech, I know why he said it, but he said, "Look, all the presidential." candidates are much better the, uh, on this issue than anyone we've had in the past referring to George Bush and he uh even named Barack Obama and John McCain on it saying they were much better than Bush Bob Barr was actually in the audience the libertarian candidate and he mentioned Bob Barr in the beginning of the speech said I appreciate him coming uh Will I Am was also in the audience from uh, I believe he's from the Black Eyed Peas in fact he is uh and uh and he uh, mentioned him as well anyway that was a little disappointing to some i see I see where they 're coming from, which is, hey, you know what there 's no way John McCain is going to do this ambitious plan that you 're talking about. You know it, I know it. The Republicans get money from the coal companies. no way he 's going to do your plan, so to put him in the same breath and the same sentence and give him almost as much credit as Barack Obama. It's it's not a, it's not a great message. On the other hand, I know why he did it. He wants to bring the country together. He doesn't want to make it about politics. Unfortunately, the Republicans are going to make it about politics. So I was torn on that inclusion. But I love the plan overall. And you know, I listened to him and I thought, I believe, I believe.
1: Obama, as he noted in the opening moments of this speech, um, he he is not president. He is there as an American who would like to be president. But he's got a little thing called a presidential election to win before that happens. In other words, he's got to go through John McCain if he wants to be president. And McCain is not rolling over and conceding. If Obama is going to be given big, serious presidential sounding speeches in foreign capitals redefining America's role in the world for a post-George Bush era... If Obama's going to be bringing Berlin to its feet, hell, bringing Berlin to a standstill to hear him articulate his vision for post-Bush America, then John McCain will compete. John McCain had a competing event today while Obama was in Berlin. You might want to sit down for this.
4: I'm here with uh, Senator Lindsey Graham, and we just had the opportunity of having lunch at Schmidt's Saatchi's house. Uh, In interest of full disclosure, it is no relation to Steve Schmidt, who is uh, part of our campaign, as we know.
1: I see you one speech before a million people in downtown Berlin, and I raise you an appearance at Schmidt's Sausage House.
3: Uh, I love it. I mean, what are you gonna do? Come on! I mean, what are you you're gonna nitpick this speech? And that's what you're gonna do. George Bush, in his wildest dreams, couldn't imagine giving a speech one percent as good as this. If he had one of those sentences in his speech and he actually delivered it well, he'd think he'd pull a Costanza, he'd be like, "Doesn't get any better than this. I'm out of here." He'd just leave like six months early from the from office and what i love most about the speech is as far as the content of it is concerned is that obama gets it this is he talk, you know what he's talking about he's talking about the idea of america not america as a country not america as a people as he said not america as a tribe or a kingdom but america as an idea and that idea is universal that idea lives in berlin that idea lives throughout the world and that's why he said i come to you as a citizen of the united states and i come to you as a citizen of the world and that was the driving theme of this speech and it wasn't just a speech that worked well in america with a domestic audience it wasn't just a speech that worked well uh... politically uh... across the world as well it wasn't just a speech that made him look presidential all those things are true but it was a speech that had at its core something great something true something that is the essence of this country That's why I support Barack Obama, because he gets what America is all about.
4: Thanks for listening, everybody, and thanks for hanging in there with the show while we've been gone for a little while. you know, as if you've been listening, you know the the show's not been on quite as uh, regularly as it has been in the past, going through a bit of a rough patch. But the good news is, we're not gone for good. First, uh, better news is uh, we're here right now. Got a new show coming out uh, that you just listened to, which uh, I thoroughly enjoyed. And uh, and the even better news is I've got good news in the future. Uh, I've got a good feeling about the show. I've got uh, some new ideas that I think can uh, can pull us out of this little slump and hopefully we can get this thing going on a more regular basis again. I've said that before in the past um, for a long time I feel like this show has been running on uh, on hope and uh, and kind of gasps of uh, of last breath but uh, but I, I I actually have a little bit more than hope this time. I've got a little bit of something to back it up, and I'm, I'm excited about the potential for this. I'm excited that uh, we may be able to keep the show going, uh, and and like I say, be a little bit more regular. So, uh, if you are one of the people who are somewhat interested in helping the show, uh, just you know, by donating a little bit of time, and uh, and you haven't been sure how to do it. I've got I've got good news coming your way how to help the show is about to get easier than it's ever been more accessible to more people it'll take less time than ever before and uh, and and should be more streamlined and easy to understand than ever before and uh, I'm not going to talk about it just now I got maybe just a couple of bugs to work out in the system uh, ideas that are, that we're kicking around. But, uh, but I just want to give you that note of, of good news on the horizon. I've got a good feeling about the show. I hope you have a good feeling about the show. Stick around, tell all your friends to, uh, to subscribe and, uh, you know, keep supporting the show in, in all the ways we've been asking for a long time. Leave us reviews in iTunes, vote for us in podcast alley, dig the show on dig.com. Um, and uh there's probably more than that, but uh I just want to say it's good to be back um, with a more positive outlook and uh and I hope you stick around and I hope we uh continue to do great things and and that you guys continue to help uh, thanks to everyone who actually uh who who did respond to to my call before asking for help you know that's what this show's been all about from the very beginning not not that uh <laughs> Not that we put a show together and then realized we needed help. Uh, this show has always been about commu- community support, community input, uh, you know, in- input from the listeners to help the show keep going and help make it as good as it can be. So uh, as a listener of the show, that's the community that you have the opportunity to be a part of and and we hope you take that opportunity it's It's a great time. Uh, we love making the shows and obviously think that they're a valuable resource to people who don't have that much time but want lots of information and, and uh, these resources that we can get together so uh, keep supporting the show I uh, love you guys for listening and uh, that's it for today so my name is Jay this has been the best of the left podcast coming to you from best of Left black and white
1: apart a picture that wasn't right, pitch burning on a shining sheet, the only maker that you want to meet, a dying man in a living room, who shadow bases the floor.